So I'm reading from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 29, and then I'm moving on to chapter 3 and the first three verses there. So 1 John, John's first epistle, chapter 2 and verse 29, at the end of chapter 29, he says, or rather at the end of chapter 2, he says in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, that is God, righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. May the Lord bless our reading from his word. Did you ever give someone a gift that had a number of features um, to it? It may have had a a lot of buttons or a lot of functions to try, um, or it may just be that it made a lot of sounds. Um, Perhaps it was just an app. You were showing someone your phone, and you were saying, look, this can do this and this and that and, and all those things. Sometimes when you give that kind of gift, um, you can get pretty excited to show the other person everything that it'll do, all those features, and you can get ahead of you, you can get ahead of them, and impatient because they aren't moving through the options quickly enough. I remember, as a father, I was guilty of that from time to time. I remember buying my children a fire engine that had buttons you could push that made all sorts of noises. And uh, I'd uh, get that, and I was busy trying to show them everything I could do while they were still looking at the box and going, oh, wow, look at the box. And I'm, but yeah, but look, it does this, and it does, you know, and they weren't paying any attention because they were still involved with the container it came in. In my excitement, I was pressuring them, really, to go along without giving them the opportunity to savor things along the way. Anxious that they should see the whole wonder at once. But often, an important part of approaching the whole of anything involves taking time to consider the details, the parts, the the things that make up the whole, and considering them carefully. When John says here in the opening of chapter 3 of his first epistle, see or behold, he's referencing that excitement of showing someone something special and wanting them to contemplate the beauty of the parts and then to take in the wonder of the whole. Now with that understanding in mind, Listen again to what he says here. He says, see or behold. And we've mentioned this many times. We fall into the trap of thinking, well, this is a Bible word. You know, when you want to say something that sounds like a Bible thing, you start by saying, behold, and then that gets you thinking. But that's not the purpose of this. 
It has a reason. It has a purpose. So he says, see or behold what kind or what manner of love the Father has given to or bestowed upon you that you should be called the children of God. Stop. Think about it for a minute. Pull back and think about the manner or the character of the love that God has bestowed on you that you should be called the children of God. So first we have this invitation, even instruction we might say, to pause and consider from all angles the thing that's set before us, this love of the Father. Asaph wrote in the Psalms, and this is Psalm 77 in verse 12, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. This work of naming us the children of God is a mighty deed of the Lord, and it's a work worth pondering, and part of it has to do with the love that made it possible. The instruction includes examining what kind or what manner of love was involved here, where it comes from, what's its nature, what it does, what it looks like, what its purpose is, and, and what's its design. John then describes it as being given or bestowed on you, not parceled out to us in bits, but fully bestowed on you. This isn't a love that's, that's uh, flickering, so to speak. Sometimes it's shown, sometimes it's withdrawn, sometimes it's close, sometimes it's far. No, it's bestowed on you. It is, as it were, lavished upon you by God. Not oppressively, but really and effectually from before the foundations of the world, the Bible says. The result of this love, then, John says, is that we are named by God the Father, his children. John wrote in his gospel, and he said this. This is in John chapter 1, the first chapter of his gospel, and verse 11. He said, he that is Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this glorious adoption that is the result of God's love coming down to the point where it named you a child of God if you're a believer this morning, That adoption is described in our confession of faith. And it says this, all those that are justified, all those that are redeemed by the justification that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, God vouchsafed or granted in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and the privileges of the children of God. Have his name put upon them. (coughs) Excuse me. 
Have his name put upon them. Receive the spirit of adoption. Have access to the throne of grace with boldness. Are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. Are pitied, protected, and provided for. And chastened by him as a father, yet never cast off. But sealed to the day of redemption. And inherit the promise as heirs of everlasting salvation. Now, in that long paragraph, there is so much to consider, so much to reflect on, and what the character of this adoption is. One of the aspects of it is this spirit of adoption that's given to us. And that spirit of adoption is the confidence we have in the knowledge that God has made us his own through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't feel like we're strangers, but we feel like we're received. We know that we're received. We believe that we're received. We enjoy the blessings of being received as a son or as a daughter to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're to examine and consider, John says here, what sort of love this is that God the Father has laid upon you. And that has resulted in your being named a child of God. It's not quite the same now, but not all that long ago, not many years ago, you would go to the birthing area of the hospital and newborns would be behind a picture glass window in rows of bassinet carts. And they'd be lined up there depending on how many babies were were being born at the time. And when visitors came to see the baby, the father and the mother would take them down to the window and say cheerfully and proudly, that one's mine. And of course, if you were the visitor, you'd be, (laughs) which one? (laughs) And then they would say, that one, that one. They'd tell you right where it is. That's mine. I know that's mine. That's my child. That's the one that belongs to me. And the picture that John gives you here is akin to that when he says that he named you his children. It's just like that. The Lord choosing out of love to identify you as his own. Yes, that one's mine. She's a little small, but she's feisty, and she's mine. That one's mine. He's a little big, but he's mine. And that's the the picture that's given to us here. The Lord identifying us out of love. And and you can see the love in the parent, right? The parent doesn't have any trouble picking out which one of all those babies belongs to them. And the, the heart is just drawn, the eye, the attention is drawn by them right to the one that they know is their baby. And that's the picture that's given to us here of God. That's my child. That's my little one. You remember, John has already been talking in those terms from the beginning here. He's been talking. He says, I'm writing to you, my dear little ones. You remember that that image there that's at the very beginning? I'm writing to you, my dear little ones, about these things. And here, John is carrying out that picture. Here is the Lord identifying us, naming us as his own. As we now, the children of God, gather around the table this morning, I want to consider for just a moment three things about this love 
that has been bestowed on us. And we can't possibly touch on it all. But here's a few things for us to consider. First of all, he first loved you. He first loved you. This love was already and upon you before you were born. You were known and loved by him before you were conceived, beloved. The Savior didn't die hoping some would one day come to love him. He died knowing who he loved and offering himself for them out of that love. Loving you and dying for you, not as a part of a faceless mob, but as a beloved child, as an individual. You're told in the great 53rd chapter of Isaiah that the Lord Jesus suffered knowing who he was dying for and why. Now, that's not possible unless you were already loved before you were conceived because he died on the cross a long time ago, right? So it has to be that way. We read in Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement of that uh, brought, uh, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the verses 5 and 6. Coming down now to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. When he is making that offering, he will see those for whom he is dying. He will prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Bearing our iniquities so that we might be called the children of God. In his gospel, John says that Jesus told him, and this is in John ten fourteen. I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Later, in that same chapter, in verses 27 through 29, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I know them. They're not strangers to me. They're not faceless mob, a faceless mob that is just out there, and I don't know who they are, and I, I just sort of say these words and hope the right people will come along. Not at all. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, declares this. This is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestinated us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And then finally to Timothy, Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 2.19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This love is generated, beloved, not only personally towards you, but from God himself. It's not drawn out of him by the goodness or the weakness or the wickedness of the child. He chooses to adopt freely. And it's out of himself. Out of himself, the eternal God of the heavens, the only true free agent, chooses who he will adopt. Remember that fifth verse of Ephesians 1? He predestinated us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. If it were your goodness that drew his affection, then he would be bound to love you. He'd be required to love you if it was a result of your goodness. It couldn't be considered a free act on his part at all, but it's a duty. If you're good, the good God must love you. If it were your weakness or your wickedness, it would just be pure pity. But beloved, I don't know how to put this in words. It's one of those things that's very difficult to, to, to put into into something that you can say. But this love transcends that sort of one-dimensional affection that comes as a result of pity. You know how it is when you just feel sorry for somebody. You feel sorry for them. You're sorry for their plight, and you want to help them, but it's, it's very one-dimensional. This love isn't like that. It goes far beyond that. There is pity in it, to be sure, but it's something more than just feeling sorry for us in our pathetic state. There's a real and earnest and true affection for us, an affection that goes beyond (coughs) who we are and starts with who God is as God. If your children are hurting and in need, you certainly pity them. But that in no way sums up the whole of your affection, does it? Or your feelings for them. And so it is with the love of God for his little ones. John says later in this epistle, 1 John 4, beginning of verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. And again, a few verses later, he says, we love because he first loved us. This is a love, beloved, that was settled upon you by the will and the pleasure of God from the beginning. And that's why it's never safe to make assumptions or judge his love according to our feelings or our impressions 
or even our circumstances at any given time. God loved Job even while he was suffering great loss and was sickened, using his testimony to comfort thousands in the ages to come. He loved Joseph while he was hated and ill-treated by his, by his brothers and by others, using him to save many people alive. God loved David, even as David indulged in great sin, calling him to repentance. It's the promise of his love and your faith in him and his truthfulness and his steadfastness that anchors the believer in that love. That it's he who saved you and called you to a holy calling, not because of your works, but because of his own purpose and because of his grace, which he gave to you in Christ before the ages began, Paul says in 2 Timothy. So the first thing is he loved you first. Second thing we want to touch on about this love is that it's free to the Christian. It's free. It can't be either purchased or earned by anyone. It's bestowed or it's freely given. The God of heaven doesn't trade in souls. They're too valuable for that. They're too precious for that. In fact, the Bible says clearly that no one can do so. No one has either the power or the finances or wealth to carry off the transaction. Jesus asked rhetorically, and this is Matthew 16, 26. He said, what shall a man give in return for his soul? What are you going to give in return for your soul? What are you going to use to pay for it? How are you going to purchase it from sin and from death? What commodity are you going to use to do that? Of course, the answer is, you can't. There is none. In the Psalms, we read this in Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. And then in Psalm 89, verse 48, the psalmist says, What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? No one can. This is the price, beloved, that only Jesus could pay. And he did it on the cross. And the Father bestows that payment at his pleasure according to his love. When we say that it's free to the believer, we don't mean to imply that it's at no cost. On the contrary, our redemption required the greatest cost. The children of God are bought with a price, a price that goes far beyond the limits of human imagination, a price that required the torture, the suffering of the Son of God, body and soul at the cross on his or her behalf. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive 
in the Spirit. Beloved, the mockery, the slapping, the plucking out of the beard, the crown of thorns, the scourging, the nails, and the ugly, painful weight of the guilt and judgment of our sins bringing death to the Redeemer was the price, and it was sufficient for the work. No one has anything worthy to be added to it. That's the price he paid. That's the thing that he carried to the cross, our sins. And there's nothing that any of us can bring forward and say, well, this adds to it. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. Now here I want to add what I did. There's nothing that can compare. There's nothing that fits into the same category. It is Christ and Christ alone, his sacrifice alone. Freely given, freely bestowed by the love of God on those who believe. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. If anything else could do this work, beloved, you would be sure that the blood of the Son would have never been shed. When you come here and drink of the cup, the blood of the grape this morning, that's in effect what you're acknowledging. Nothing else could do this. Only his blood shed for me could wash away my sins. God alone had and has the power and authority to redeem souls and thereby to restore men, women, and children to the full and blessed status of being named the children of God with all the blessings and all the benefits. In Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, we read, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You were dead, now you're alive. What made that happen? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What was the character of the love that brought forward that gift of redemption? It was a love that was free. It is a matter of lost souls coming to Christ and asking to be forgiven their sins in his name and restored to full communion with the Lord according to his glory and grace. Isaiah 55, the prophet says there, in verses 1 through 3, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. So what sort of love is this? A love that was willing to pay the price so that it might be freely bestowed on you. And lastly, It is an enduring or unending love. Just as it began before the ages of this world began, as Paul says, so it continues throughout all eternity. 
Matthew Henry said this, It is the happiness of those who are, through grace, interested in the love of God, that it is an everlasting love from everlasting in the counsels of it to everlasting in the continuance and consequences of it, and that nothing can separate them from that love. The Lord was speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, and he said this in Jeremiah 31.3, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. And here again, you learn that it was not to be judged by circumstances. It's not to be judged by circumstances. Dark, difficult, bright, or easy. But by his promise. John Gill says that God's love is like himself, sovereign, everlasting, and unchangeable. You have been as sovereignly chosen by his love as Jacob was. In Romans 9.13, Paul says, As is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I chose to love Jacob. It was a sovereign act on the part of God. Secondly, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And this includes even time. In Psalm 103, verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. And it is sure or certain as he is unchangeable. In Numbers 23, verse 19, we read, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Beloved, you and I can say with the prophet Micah, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remission of his inheritance, or for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And so we come today to this table, being called by faith, the children of God, and recipients of this precious love. This love that came first from the heart of God, that has been freely bestowed on us, and has resulted in our being called or named the children of God. The great Erskine said, The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a love feast. And they that have their senses spiritually exercised therein will find readily all their senses filled with love. What do they hear? What does the believer hear at this table but love? What do they feel but love? What do they taste as they take the elements but love? What do they 
feel in every sense but love? What do they smell but love? It is a sweet account we have of God in the gospel. Beloved, he loves you this morning if you are his by faith, personally and individually. Not as a part of a faceless mob, but as his dear little children. He loves you openly and freely. He sets his seal upon you and he makes it known. And he's not ashamed of you. He does it freely, not by any coercion, not by any debt, but out of the free will of his own love. He loves you this morning knowing who and what you are as a sinner. It's not like he's hidden his face from it in the sense that he's pretending you have no sin and in the sense you never did sin. He's looking at you as one who has no sin because all your sins have been washed away in the blood of the Lamb under the sacrifice of Christ. He loves you in a way that impacts you personally and particularly. It impacts you personally and relatively. This is the sort of love that named you the children of God. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2.16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray.